0: So, we have been talking about the gospel, the good news, the series entitled is entitled Some Good News, and so today I want to share some more good news with you. It's going to be a challenge, and this is going to be not just an individual challenge for us coming from Mark chapter 9, but it is going to be a church-wide challenge. I heard someone tell a story one time in which <clears throat> a saint was being escorted by the apostle. You know, why is it always the apostle Peter doing this? But the apostle Peter was escorting him around heaven and, you know, showing him its beauty. And they came across a wall, and the, the wall extended in both directions as far as they could see. And, and the, the saint turned to St. Peter and he said, St. Peter, what, what is this wall in heaven? And he said, oh, The charismatics are on the other side, and shh, they think they're the only ones here. Now, I had to choose charismatics with this because I'm one of them. But the truth is, we can feel that way. Okay, the real story was Baptists, or maybe it was Methodist or Presbyterian, I don't know. But the truth is, we can inadvertently have this mindset without really communicating it. And my question today is, how might we inadvertently communicate this? How might we, in doing this, inadvertently start pointing the finger here and here? You know what? You're a weed. You're a wheat if you follow my, the parable of, that Jesus gave. And see, that's not our job. Our job, though, is to take the Scripture and what does the Scripture say about the gospel? I'm not gonna be mentioning names today. I'm not gonna be mentioning churches today. I wanna to talk about principles. There is a, an elderly gentleman who wrote a book. It would be considered an anti-charismatic book. Very strong, actually very harsh. One of the tendencies is to create straw mans of those in the charismatic movement that are extreme and knock them down. And he is right in pointing out the errors, but then to color all charismatics with the same broad brush approach. It has brought a lot of disunity to the body of Christ, but those who hold to his position believe it's brought a lot of unity. <clears throat> this same gentleman um, did something that splashed across the uh, the web, the web, the, uh, World Wide Web. Beth Moore is, she ministers in a particular denomination. Um, She has no problem preaching and teaching in the mixed audience of men and women. Uh, When I read my Bible, I disagree with that position. So you know, I disagree with that position. But it's a very common teaching in our day. My concern is how this man chose to mock her and he had other people joining in that and when he was called on the carpet he had the audacity to defend his position, that it was okay to mock her. And Beth Moore's response was nothing less than gracious, but she said that the attitude of male superiority is detrimental in the body of Christ. And can I say that that is spot on? Even though I disagree with how she seeks to carry out 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 13, I disagree with that. But she was spot on on this. And there is a male superiority that seeks that, that it's okay for men to be derogatory to women. And actually, guys, it's apparently okay to be derogatory to anybody. This attitude brings division, divisiveness in the body of Christ. I need us to walk through this today. Jesus does, and it's now our responsibility, because this is not an easy task. There are false teachers out there. There are errant doctrines being taught. So how do we sort through this? How do we speak to these issues? Paul did, by the way. Jesus did, by the way. But how did they communicate? When they saw a spade, they called it a spade. But to keep it that metaphor, it was a heart. They didn't call it a spade. What on earth do I mean by that? Just be patient with me. How do we deal with disagreements like this? Some would say, well, just don't disagree at all. Don't disagree at all. Don't point it out. Just let it go. Because the most important thing is unity in the body of Christ. The problem, though, is we can't have unity and, on the other hand, disregard truth. If there is a false teacher, Jesus says that he calls them sheep's, excuse me wolves in sheep's clothing, and he apparently has no problem with us pointing that out. My problem that I see, or the problem that I see in the body of Christ, is who do we start pointing fingers to and why? And how do we speak to them? This is a great concern because Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, said that when we are brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me. And church, we're not there. Do you want to see worldwide revival? This element, this sin in the body of Christ. And when I point the finger, I'm pointing at no man. And if I'm going to use an example that has a name to him, it's going to be me. That is the only name that I'm going to drop today because I have sinned and I have erred in this as well. And so my question is, am I the only one? Am I the only one in our church? This is significant. Jesus called us to unity and it is hard. Our goal is truth, it is reconciliation. And when you're called on the carpet, I would love to say that this this elderly man who is a pastor, when you're called on the carpet, be teachable, be humble. And Jesus says that when you rebuke a wise man, he grows even wiser. I would hope that this gentleman would grow even wiser. But you know what? I've been rebuked, and people have been right, and it is a hard thing to recognize that, to humble yourself and say, you're right, I need to repent. The church, we're all there. As you turn to Mark chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 33 through 41. <clears throat> What measuring stick for false teachers does Jesus use here? I'm going to read a little bit of what I read last week, but I'm going to move on. They came to Capernaum. Remember, they're moving from north of the Sea of Galilee down to the other side of the Jordan in Judea. They make a pit stop in Capernaum, but they have been having a discussion, actually an argument on the way. When they came to Capernaum, he was in the house. He asked them, what, are you, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, so Jesus is going to be teaching them. Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them, taking him in his arms Notice the sense of love and compassion as he now uses this child as an illustration. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Now what Jesus begins to paint, a the, the, the picture that Jesus begins to paint for us here is really An upside-down kingdom. Now, by that, I mean if you were to walk into uh, the world, into businesses of all kinds in which there's levels of or hierarchies of of authority, in the church there is an authority. But how it functions is upside-down. So don't get me wrong. What I'm about to say, there is an authority. God places elders to care for, and they are responsible before God for that church. And so there is an authority structure. But how does this play out? We use the term servant leaders, and this is the reason. Because when it comes to this, in the world... Everybody in the corporation serves the president, the the board. We're going for your goals, and there is this, we serve you. They have got secretaries and all of this, and I'm not opposed to some of this, but the concept is this pyramid, this triangle, if you will, in which we, the common people, are serving upward to those who are above us in authority. Now, there's an element in which that happens, but here's my question. To what degree does that board or the president, CEO, serve the employees? In most corporations, that is not a question that's ever asked because they believe it's completely inapplicable. What I want to say here, without dickering with that, is in the kingdom of God, it is not that way. It is an upside down kingdom in which the pastor and leaders serve the people and we all serve Christ. So if there's a pinnacle, I'm at the bottom of that pinnacle and Jesus is at the, is at the top in which there is two triangles, one set on top of the other. If we could view it this way, I'm here to serve you. I'm not here to lord it over you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to sacrifice and pour my life out for you. Jesus is my example. I do not, or at least should not, seek greatness. What does that look like? I mentioned last week. What does greatness look like? It is the humblest person in the kingdom, which is ironic because that person never seeks greatness. So if you're seeking greatness... You got it backwards. You're not the servant. You're not humble. You're proud. You're selfishly ambitious. And I'm sorry, there's too many of those in the kingdom of God. So listen to Jesus's words. We then serve the people with humility. He then moves into this illustration. And so he takes a child, a little child in his arms. He's sitting down and the child is standing. So we're not talking about a teenager here. As Jesus would hold him probably by the knees and look up, he is rather holding a smaller type of child in his arms, holding him. This little child now becomes an example of humility. Now, if we were to look at what Matthew says, Matthew in chapter 18, and I am going to turn to that here. Okay, here we go. Matthew 18, three. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's different than what Mark records here. And it's not that they're contradictory. It's just that Mark includes one aspect of what Jesus said. Matthew records another. And Matthew's purpose is to say, if you're gonna enter the kingdom of of heaven, you have to become like this little child. And to have that type of humility and servant's heart, you have got to change and become. Become like this child. This word change in the NASB, it reads this way, unless you are converted. The Greek word is turned. The point here is change direction. See, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Be like that little child, humble. A little child is not going to exalt himself over his parent. Well, I stepped into that one, didn't I? Okay, sometimes they do. They have their little temper tantrums. But I'm sure this child was not doing that. This child was humble. This, this child was, okay. Parents, what, what do you? How, how do I obey you? What do I do? That's the heart. It's a humble heart. It's changing actually from being an enemy of God in rebellion against him, lost and stuck in this rut of sin, and being changed. And ASB says converted and becoming like. And so Jesus makes it clear what he is talking about when he's referring to a little child is a believer in Jesus. Now, if you were to refer back to Mark chapter 9 and in verse 42, it says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So I want us to understand this fact. When Jesus talks about little children, he's not just talking about humility. He's talking about one who was lost in sin and proud, (laughs) kind of like these 12 that were following him. Your attitude needs to be like this child and your heart needs to change and you need to believe in me. That's what this little child represents. That's important now as we move on because he says, welcome those little children. And so my question is, in the body of Christ, how are we welcoming these little children who believe in me? I am a little child who believes in Jesus. Okay? Beth Moore is a little child who believes in Jesus and I do believe she believes in Jesus she I believe that she is converted she belongs to her savior Jesus did this older man treat her that way did he truly welcome her he did not now I agree with his position but he was harsh And I need to, we just need to recognize there is a way that we treat one another when we disagree with them. And there is a way in which God looks down upon it and says, that's pride, stop. And so John speaks up and he says, oh, you know, welcoming these little children. You know what, Jesus? We came across this man and he was casting out demons in your name and we told him to stop. He was kind of anticipating Jesus saying, dude, that is so awesome, pat, 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 that is great. He was expecting Jesus' praise. Did he get it? No, Jesus rebuked John. John, by the way, was the very same one, along with his brother James, when they were wandering through Samaria and the Samaritans didn't welcome them. They looked at Jesus and said, should we call down fire from heaven? like, oh yeah, you know what? There are too many Christians who are calling down fire from heaven upon one another. And Jesus rebuked them. And Jesus rebukes them here. But Jesus says, do not stop him. Wow. We need to be welcoming those types. They are a child of God. Now, let me just help us understand something here when Jesus uses the phrase, in my name, or we would say in Jesus' name, we need to understand that phrase two ways. Number one, I command you to come out of that man in Jesus' name. And if we're not careful, this could be, in, this could be almost like an incantation, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Well, what do you mean by in Jesus' name? Because in Matthew 7, let me read to you a passage from there. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, not, en- not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. But only he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons, just like this man was doing. And perform many miracles. Then, Jesus is talking here. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And I think it would be fair to assume, understanding that Jesus is talking about little children, believers in Jesus, who are in Christ. I'm going to come back to that phrase in a moment. But... This one who was driving out demons did so in Jesus' name. Yet, on the other hand, there are those who would be driving out, Jesus, driving out demons in Jesus' name. And he says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Because truly, they were not doing the will of the Father and were opposed to Jesus. So, I'm going to suggest to you that this is Jesus isn't using, or, or even John is not using this term in your name to be some incantation. And I think you understand what I'm saying. There are many out there who heal in Jesus' name, but it's more as an incantation. And some of them are not true believers in Jesus. But there are those, many, like, I believe, the one that John came across, that when they cast out demons, they understood the power of the name of Jesus that we just sung about, by the way, (laughs) And Paul makes this big deal about what it means to be in Christ. Because if I am in Christ, and I'm going to explain that in a moment, that means that I have authority in Christ. And consequently, when I speak to a demon to come out, as this man did, as the apostles did, as Jesus did, when we speak to the demon, Jesus told, Jesus said to his disciples, I have given you power over all. Excuse me, authority over all the power of the enemy, and that was not just something given to the apostles, but it is something that is given to every believer in Christ because they are in Christ. Now, maybe you've heard the term power of attorney. Power of it, and I had power of attorney over with her aunt. Because she could barely sign her name. It was a bunch of scribble-scrabble. And towards the end, she, she was not com- always coherent. And so we would sign documents for her. We legally could do that. We would sign her name because we had power of attorney. So we represented her. As a Christian, you have power of attorney. You can, in Jesus' name... Assume that authority because you're in Christ and that authority flows through you. And by the way, Jesus said that all authority in heaven and earth has been given him. And when we function in his name, he even says, speak to the mountain and it will be moved. Now, I'm not preaching on that. I need us to understand that when Jesus is speaking about in his name, people doing things in his name he obviously understands this concept of being in Christ did you know that because we are in Christ we have been raised from the dead spiritual death and separation from God and embrace this new life in Christ so that he says that (coughs) that we have been raised up and seated with Christ in Christ in the heavenly realms can I ask you where is Jesus sitting In the heavenly realms, is he not sitting on a throne next to his father, at the right hand of his father? That's what chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 1 in Ephesians tells us. In chapter 2, we find ourselves seated with Christ on his throne. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that I walk around in arrogance. That's silliness. Casting out demons in, what, my name? I have been given power, excuse me, authority over all the power of the enemy. I, as a result of being in Christ, and therefore a little child in him, I can represent him. Now, grasp this. Because when you speak against your brother or your sister, they are representatives of Jesus if they're truly converted. And you, if you do not welcome them and you speak against them, you speak against Christ Himself. If you malign them, you malign Christ Himself. Now, we, need, we need to get this. I have been in situations in which people have been harshly critical of me. How do I? And they're Christians. How do I respond? Do I respond in like kind? Do I take my anger instead of it being a, uh, my ally? Do I use it as a weapon? Oh, yeah, and get back at them? You know, that would serve my flesh plenty fine. And, and there's something inside me that would want to do that, but that wouldn't make it right. That's the old Mike Curtis. That's the Mike Curtis that found himself in the principal's office every week because he was in a fight. That's my flesh. When we speak against people, I'm not saying disagreeing with what they teach. There's a place for that. I'm going to speak to it in a moment. But when you speak against them, when you rail upon them, when you mock them, you mock Christ because they are in Christ. If you welcome me, If you welcome these little ones, you welcome me, he says. But guess what? The converse is true. If you reject them, if you mock them, hey, church, you mock Jesus. Now, can you feel the gravity of this situation? Verse 41, how do we treat believers in Christ that we disagree with. It says, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because I believe, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. That person belongs to Jesus. Now, let me just say, I'm going to repeat that question. How do we treat believers or at least people who call themselves believers in Christ that we disagree with? The first thing I want to touch on, and since my focus is not this, maybe one day it will be, but it is not today. It is welcoming rather than finding out who the wolves are. But there are wolves. There are people who claim to be in Christ. They wear sheep's clothing, and they look just like Christians. I'm going to challenge you. Do not be afraid to call out those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. They reject the gospel, and that is what I mean by a wolf in sheep's clothing. They reject the gospel. That is who Jesus is. And what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross and by his resurrection, that is the gospel. First Timothy, and you don't have to turn here, but let me, let's, let's see how Paul handled this. He's speaking to Timothy, who has been given the charge over Ephesus to make sure elders are set in and that the church is running and functioning <coughs> as Christ would want it. And he says in verse 19, chapter 1, Some have rejected these, that is, faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them, he calls names here, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to to blaspheme. Now, I don't know what Alexander or Hymenaeus were saying. I'm going to turn to a passage which gives us an indication. I don't know if that is exactly what Paul is referring to here, but these guys are moving into false doctrine, and he calls them on the carpet. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 says that only those who claim to be Christians but are living a sinful lifestyle do you hand over to Satan. When he says hand them over, that means disfellowship them. Now, I'm not going to get into the concept of disfellowshipping today and what entails there. How do you do it? Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5 and such, but I will say this, there is a place for disfellowshipping. That's what Paul did with these two men. He uses their names, Alexander and Hymenaeus. He calls a spade a spade, There is something deeply wrong in these men that is poisoning the body of Christ and calls them out and says, we need to separate these men. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 says to the end that that the devil deals with their flesh. That's what he's hoping will happen here. He is hoping for repentance on their part. He's dealing with them as he would a Christian. Probably two years later, we're not exactly how long, maybe three or four. Paul writes his last letter that's recorded in the New Testament before he dies, and it is to Timothy. And he says this. He says in chapter 2, 2 Timothy, verse 16, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, And Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth, they say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. He rejects them as unbelievers. I could read further as he describes it, but he calls a spade a spade. There is a place for this. My concern is that when you go online, you can see everybody point, calling this pastor out, calling this pastor out. And I didn't like what he says. He's a false teacher. What is the measuring stick for a false teacher? He doesn't teach the gospel. He doesn't teach the gospel. One particular gentleman, um, I'm about halfway through watching the video. I don't know if this video is, is legit or not. I don't know. I haven't watched it all. And there are accusations against a particular man Um, that I I won't mention his name or his church, but there are probably six, eight accusations against him that will qualify him as a false teacher. Now, can I say that some of those may be true? I I just don't know, because I haven't researched it. I have researched some, because I was concerned about this man. And in a book that he wrote, and I've read only one of his books, he's written several, I've read only one. That's not a lot. But in that book, he said, that when Jesus became man, he divested himself of his divinity. Do you mean that he stopped being God? Now, this created quite a stir in the body of Christ. And I wanted to know, where does he stand on this? Because this is who Jesus is. This is integral to the gospel. So I began to research it. And I came across an article, actually more, in which this man was actually interviewed. And he was asked, when you said in your book, that, what I just quoted you, did you mean that Jesus stopped being God? And he said, "No, I do not." By divinity, I simply mean that Jesus was no longer omniscient, omnipresent and uh, omniscient, omnipresent and omnipotent. I'm not sure I would go that far, but there are plenty of theologians that would say Jesus set those glories aside. I believe it just a little differently as far as his humanity enshrouding that so that he was limited regardless of how we walk it out. He then said, I do not believe that Jesus ever stopped being God. Now, I do believe that he is one that can be rather sloppy with his theology and how he communicates it. I believe that. Because I I read at least one book, and I read some of what he teaches. And I I just wish that he would be much more careful in the words, the phrases that he uses. But that's who he is, I guess. I, I wish that would change. But when someone confronted him on this, he clarified. That's one of the things that the body of Christ rarely does. We read something, and we make this huge display of it, we put it on YouTube, we display it for the whole body of Christ to see, and then we interview the man. How wise is that? That is not what Jesus instructed us to do, Matthew 18 and more. But can I be honest, and I am guilty of this, there can be an arrogance in us that loves to be, let me produce this video. I've never done this, but let me produce this video that's going to get a lot of hits and everybody's going to be curious. They're going to want to watch this video. And I'm wondering to what degree there is an ounce of selfish ambition in all of this. But on the other hand, I do reckon as a pastor, there are, there are dangerous wolves in sheep's clothing. And I do want to know who those are. It's just that church today, we have bloggers. We have people who, many of them, not even pastors. I don't know, maybe that's why they became bloggers, but they want to be the one. They want to be the official watchman on the wall, Ezekiel 3, to be able to call out people on all of their mistakes and then conclude, see, wolf in sheep's clothing, false teacher. This is destroying the body of Christ. It truly is. I impact maybe 60 people here at Powerline. Many bloggers impact thousands. Their influence is far greater than mine, okay? But unfortunately, they're the ones that get listened to. And the body of Christ, oh, he's a false teacher. She's a false teacher. On and on we go. Have we ever asked them personally? No. Wow. Church, do you see the arrogance that we have? Do you see the sloppiness, the disunity, maybe the selfish ambition on our part? What is the gospel? It is who Jesus is. His deity and his humanity, church, is crucial to the gospel. What did he accomplish for us on the cross? What is the power of the blood? When when a man starts teaching that Jesus died for our sins by being taking on the punishment of the Father, and then criticizing that doctrine and saying that's cosmic child abuse, that man is touching on the gospel. He has erred. He has moved away. I'm not even going to call that man's name out because I promised that I wouldn't. But he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He parts from the gospel. He believes in universal salvation. And 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 there's, I think he has like 40 videos about where he stands, and half of them are contra the gospel. Now, only because I have not, only because I said in the beginning I'm not going to call names out, and I wasn't planning on sharing that as an example. I'm going to stay true to my word. But church, yes, call a spade a spade, when they're so blatant. But when they say things that, what does he mean by that? how about if we ask them? I can't tell you how many times that I misunderstood somebody, but when I ask them, that's what you mean. Okay, I probably would have worded it differently, but you know, now I understand what you're saying. Can we do that? Because if we reject them, if we are saying you're a false teacher and we impact thousands, we defame Jesus himself. Can I share with you in Philippians chapter one, Paul wrestled with this, wrestled with this issue very clearly. And in Philippians chapter one, he says this, he says, but what, he says, the latter do, talking about those who preach the gospel. There are some who do it with right motives, some with wrong motives. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here in the defense of the gospel, but the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. I mean, is that even possible? According to Paul, it is. They preach the gospel, they preach about Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Here's what he concludes. This always amazes me, but what does it matter? They're preaching the gospel, right? But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Notice, Paul mentions no names here. I'm sure he could have, but he didn't because he would potentially be maligning the body of Christ. He doesn't call them wolves in sheep's clothing, savage wolves, Acts 20. No, he doesn't. But their motives are wrong. And very possibly part of the body of Christ, but their, their hearts, wow. Jesus needs to reach into their hearts and change them but he hasn't yet. And you know what, church? There's some things in my life that Jesus needs to reach down into and change in me too. So we call out those who truly do not preach the gospel. But let me move on. Number two. Number one, we do call out those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. But number two, and I'm going to remain with this for the entirety of the sermon. I would add, please, 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 in front of number two, be gracious in your disagreements and welcome those who belong to the body of Christ. Can I just tell you that years ago, I found myself as a youth pastor in disagreement with something in a network of churches. Specifically, my exposure was in this particular church. They had imparted so much good into me, so much but I saw something in their leadership. And granted, it would, because I desired to be raised up into leadership, I found I could not align myself with this mentality. And after much fasting and prayer, talking with my wife, we decided it would be needed, necessary for us to move on. But here's what I did. The first step was a good one. I sat down with the senior pastor. I mentioned that I would be leaving and I shared with him first how much I appreciated about all that they have taught me and helped me with, but why I was leaving. But the second thing, church, I was foolish. There was probably half a dozen people that I ended up speaking with and I let them know why we were leaving. And I maligned the leadership of that church. And the pastor found out about it and called me and I got defensive. I was foolish. I was an absalom and I was calling them away from that church without doing that. And I could rationalize it in my mind, but I spoke against some of God's children. Now, can I say over the next five years about 60 leaders and pastors left that network of churches, including one of its co-founders. The other co-founder continued to lead it. The problems persisted. And they eventually got enough of the body of Christ saying there's a problem here that they asked that man to step down. That was a wise move. And I'm only sharing this with you because as I'm challenging you, be so careful when you speak against another Christian. I did that. About two years, maybe three years later, the Spirit of God convicted me and I wrote that man a letter and I apologized for what I had done to those half dozen people. And I did not speak graciously about that senior pastor, even though I enjoyed so much of his ministry. Do you hear what I'm saying, church? And, and I'm not calling you out before I call me out. I want to commend you because. Four years ago, now five, I guess, we were a part of Sanford 2015. There were people in that that pastors truly saved, but we would step back and say, wow, I don't believe that way. But we linked arms with them. Why? Because they were not just followers. They were so longing to proclaim Jesus and the gospel. Did we agree with everything that all the pastors, of course we didn't, we didn't. But can I say, I was so proud of you guys because when I looked at the roster of who was serving, almost our entire church was a part of this. And I wanna be careful here that I, I don't wanna say this out of pride, but percentage wise, we served in that far more than any other church. Lord, if I just sin, forgive me. But you know what? I, as your pastor, I was just so proud of you. I mean, you, you were willing to follow my lead and say, you know what? This is what the Bible talks about, unity, complete unity. I can labor next to this woman who says she's a pastor, and I disagree with that. But you know what? We are in this for the gospel. We are here to rescue the lost. We are not here to fight Now, we can have discussions, pleasant, gracious discussions over doctrine. And this is perfectly fine. But when, what an amazing thing when we can stand shoulder to shoulder with someone that we disagree with on some finer theological points, but we embrace the gospel, we belong to Jesus, we believe in him, and we will fight the same cause to see the gospel extended to the ends of the earth. That is what I believe in. That is what I dream of and I pray for. And all of us were in agreement. Yes, this is what we will do. And we did see many coming to Christ in this crusade that they had at that memorial baseball stadium downtown in Sanford. Here's what I do know. For me, as I ex- you know what church I preach this message to m- any message I preach, I preach it to me several times to be better put, the Spirit of God preaches it to me several times before anything comes out of my mouth on a Sunday morning. I know that when I preach or when I even talk with people, there is an intensity about me. I love truth. But if I'm not careful, I can step across this line and and try and prove my point. And maybe there's an ounce or more of pride in it. Maybe it's just the intensity, but I can come across too strong. I can come across too strong, too intense. Part of that is my upbringing. I was born and raised in a very conservative Presbyterian denomination. That's my roots. Those roots go back three, almost 400 years Abraham Pearson, a relative of mine, came to America as a Puritan pastor. He had a grandson who helped found Yale University in his the church that he pastored. It eventually moved off campus from New Jersey to wherever, and it then changed its name and became, excuse me, yeah, Yale, Yale University. My great great grandfather, A. T. Pearson had the privilege of being able to preach in Spurgeon's church in London, England, while Spurgeon was on his deathbed for over two years. He opted not to take the pastorate there when Spurgeon died, and they handed that off to Spurgeon's brother. This is my heritage. But there was a point in my theological life in my 20s in which I, I, I applied my heart and mind to the scriptures, whether I was to follow this and truly embrace it or not, and there were, there were a number of points in which I discovered I don't agree with. And so in all fairness, I would say to my great-great-grandfather, who I thoroughly respect, I disagree with you on this and on this. But if I were to speak to him, oh my goodness, I, that man amazes me. He's my hero. How, I would never be able to speak ungraciously to Him. And yet what I have found is sometimes when I speak to others that hold very strongly to Calvinism, I cannot be gracious sometimes. And that's a fault of mine. I can be too intense. And I need to just take a breath and take a step back. I love truth. I love defending the truth. But I realize even myself, I can defend it to the point of becoming an offense. Forgive me, I am not done. I am moving on here. As a matter of fact, I've learned something. I'm going to stop apologizing when I go over time, okay? I believe that God wants us to get the... Church, what I'm sharing with you right now is an indispensable truth. Now, here's why. There's a church in our community, and their motto is... Let me find it here. That they make church as fun as possible, that they, that, they, that they would make it hard for people to go to hell. I listened to that, and everything in me cringed. Because it is absolutely impossible to make church so fun that it makes it hard for people to go to hell. Because what's at the heart of this is not how fun being a Christian is, but how hard it is for the lost to deal with their sin nature and let it be crucified by God's grace to follow Jesus. Fun will never overcome that. But here's what I've not done. So what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? I have a feeling they would probably say, you know what? There's a lot of people out there who have been disillusioned with the church. And when we do fun things, it draws them in and they hear the gospel. And if Christ initially doesn't draw them, maybe the fun things will. But eventually, the gospel we believe will change them. Okay. I I might be personally concerned how many bikes they're going to give away if you come to their church that Sunday, but what becomes the focal point. But you know what? Whether from false motives or true, let's get past that. Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And if we're not careful, we could speak against that church. Have you asked them? I haven't. Have you asked their pastors? What do you mean by that actually? Just share your heart with me. I seriously doubt that they would say, you know what, we believe that the heart of the gospel is fun. I'm going to tell you right now, they they probably don't believe that. Or how about this? There's there's a church out there, and probably a couple, that when they do their praise and worship, they have smoke coming out, and they do the twinkling lights like it's a big concert. I I struggle with that. I struggle with it, because after a while, you what, what, is, is this a distraction? Am I truly able to enter in and worship Christ? But if I'm not careful, I can cross that line and start preaching against smoke and lights. Granted, I, when we first had lights in here three and a half years ago, um, I, I told the, the sound guys, I said, look, here's a policy that I would like us to establish from this day forward. Select a light for this stage and don't change it. Keep it that way. If we change the lighting, that is so cool. I like it. I like in concerts that's there to to fun and and such. And and I like the changing lights. It's entertainment. But when when I go to worship, I, I really don't want to be entertained. And I don't want to be distracted by the changing lights. I don't. But you know what? If we're not careful, we start crossing the line and we start tagging, oh, that's a false church. Really? Why? Because they have smoke. And they change their lights. Really? So have you asked the pastor what he believes about the gospel? Well, no, I don't need to. You know what? Maybe you do. And can I say, if we're not careful as a church, we start labeling churches. Oh, that's not a good church. Okay, well, 100 people came to Christ that, that week. They were baptized. And some of them, their lives were truly, maybe all of them, their lives were truly changed. But that church does things that I don't disagree with. They're a false church. So people are getting saved in false churches. That's a new one. Wow, okay. Now, granted, there are in liberal churches that don't preach the gospel, sometimes they read the gospel and people actually get converted in spite of what the pastor says after he reads the scriptures. I'm grateful for that. But that would be a false church because they don't preach the gospel. But church, let's be so careful. Let's realize that we do not have a corner market. I don't have a corner market on truth. So let's be careful. The gospel is who is Jesus and what did he accomplish for me on the cross? There are plenty of churches that don't teach the gospel. But are we going to go through as watchmen on the wall, as watchdogs pointing out sin? And I'm wondering what kind of dog is watching because that watchdog just might be a pit bull. And if you're familiar with pit bulls, when they grab a hold of something, they dislocate their jaw and they lock onto it. And the only way that that pit bull can be released is if you kill him. You take a bat and you smash his brains out. Excuse me, maybe that was too harsh for some of you. You got to kill it. So let me ask you this. Are you a pit bull? Think about that. Some of these bloggers, actually many of them, are pit bulls. I know one man, it's the network of churches that I left, was foolish in what I said, but this man was a leader in the leadership team. He left, he created a blog. His life is devoted to that blog, and that blog has one purpose, to expose this network of churches. His entire life is to expose this network of churches, to pick out every single thing that he can find that is wrong with it. Now, trust me, there's enough in that network God needs to change, and I'm not saying there isn't, but his life is devoted to this. And when you read it, you can hear the bitterness. I don't know what his story is. I've never asked him. I knew the man 20, 30 years ago, but he devotes his life to this. Where are we, church? Have we devoted our life to be pit bulls? Have we devoted our life to speak against Christ himself? You know, when I get to heaven, Jesus will not ask me what I believe about women pastors. He will not ask me about water baptism. He will not ask me whether I believe that all the spiritual gifts of the spirit were for today or not. I wouldn't mind answering those questions, but he's not going to ask me that. You know what he's going to ask me? Mike, Did you give your life for me? Did you follow me? Did you take up your cross and follow me? Did you deny self? Was I your Lord and Savior? How did you follow me? What did you give your life to? A blog that speaks against people in my name? Did you give your life to the cause of Christ and to advancing, extending the kingdom of God and preaching undiluted truth? Is that what you gave your life to? Jesus is not going to judge my heart based on my theology apart from the gospel. That's the kingping. That is it. I do believe that right theology impacts right living. But can I admit to you, I have seen people that I disagree with and would say, I, I, I think they, they teach some error here. They embrace the gospel, but they teach some error here can I humbly say that many of them will receive more rewards in heaven than I will because their character far outshines mine. They are servants of Christ. Can we be humble? And can we receive this truth? And can we just say, you know what? I'm willing to call a spade a spade, but you know what? I'm gonna ask some questions first. And those that I disagree with in the body of Christ, I will purpose to be so gracious with them. I have no problem disagreeing with them in love. Speak the truth in love. But I will go no further. I will not attack them. I will not mock them on a public stage. And I will not devote my life to a blog that speaks against Christians. What foolishness. Church, can you stand with me? And I'm I'm just going to say, can can we just, as we turn the lights out and let the Spirit of God keep ministering to us, but you know what? Maybe some of us, and not just myself, need to do some repenting. Words that we have said that has spoken against a brother or sister, even in our church. Words that we have said that have condemned gospel-preaching churches. Words that we have said that have hurt, that have brought disunity, and we at this point have refused to seek reconciliation. Church, reconciliation is what the cross is all about. So, Father, please. God... We have so defamed the name of Christ in our generation. I know, God, I have spoken too harshly at times. And as Martin Luther said before the council of Catholic priests, In some of my writings, I have spoken too harshly. And I ask for forgiveness and I recant those. But on the word of God, on those doctrines that I part company with, that have spoken against the blood of Christ, I do not. And on this truth, I stand and can do no other. Father, forgive us for our lack of humility and graciousness, compassion, pride. Give us the heart of Christ that would always and constantly offer that cup of cold water in Jesus' name to those who believe. Give us that heart. Give us the heart of Jesus, the humble heart, the servant's heart. Please, God, change this in me, in us. Thank you for your forgiveness, God. Thank you that your goodness is so good that love, your love, covers a multitude of sins our love be like that. Heal wounds, God. Heal division. Come to your body and make it completely one. Please, God, help us. In Jesus' name, we